So we'll talk about that, growing in those things that Christians should grow in. Um, and then Peter will talk about just really convincing his hearers that the faith that you're a part of is the true faith. And then he's going to go and he's going to talk about a couple of things. The first one is heresy. Uh, he is going to share that heretics are going to come. Uh, there are going to be people who are going to come and they're going to teach things that will float you away from your true faith. And then the last thing he's going to talk about is this. Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. And uh, we'll probably end with that. That'd be a nice way to end, wouldn't it? All right. So um, let me read the first few verses. Um, well, no, let's just go ahead and pray. And then we'll just start walking down through it very quickly. Um, Kimmy, would you pray? And ask God to bless uh, the opening of his word. Thank you. God, I thank you for your word. Mm-hmm. That it is alive and can speak to us now as it did to your followers then. I pray that you would bless our reading of the word and our study of it this morning. Amen. Amen. Okay, Second Peter starts off this way. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. <clears throat> so, it is Peter writing to other Christians. And he calls himself Simon Peter. In the first book, he called himself Peter. Second book, he begins by saying Simon Peter. And you remember, uh, originally, his name was uh, Shimon, Shimeon. Uh, we, we call it Simon. But if you, if you know a little bit about um, Hebrew, the word Shema is um, the word here. Uh, there's a, a portion of scripture that Jews quote every day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one God. And the first word in that is Shema. So they say the they call it the Shema. And so Simon's name was basically Shimon or Shema. And it means to hear. And of course, in the Greek or in the Hebrew mindset, if someone says, did you hear me? It doesn't mean did the vibrations of my voice get to your eardrum, make your eardrum vibrate, and that noise go to your head, what it meant was, are you doing what I said? Are you doing what I said? Shema, hear, O Israel, hear, and let the hearing translate into doing. That's what the word means. You've got to have that in your head. So he brings that into it from the very beginning. Hear, <laughs> Shimon, uh, Peter. Of course, Jesus had seen Peter as being impetuous and um, acting on what he heard without wisdom. And, uh, but at some point he said, you know, I'm changing your name and I'm calling you uh, Cephas. 
Cephas is the Aramaic word, and, and that translated into Greek is uh, Petrus. And so he's Peter to us. Uh, Peter the rock, the solid one, which is kind of interesting because if you just read the, the Gospels, you wouldn't consider him necessarily the solid one. You would consider him the powerful one. You would consider him the one that's ready to go. Uh, he's the one who jumped out on the water but sank. Uh, he's the one that cut off the ear of the guy that was trying to take Jesus, but Jesus had to put that back on. And uh, he's the one that would never deny Jesus and did so three times. <clears throat> but he's also the one that preached the first sermon after they'd been baptized in the Holy Spirit. And thousands of people came to Jesus. So uh, this is a guy uh, who has been touched deeply by Jesus. And we see that his character, his nature, his life, his way was changed. From a guy who had knowledge and acted impulsively to a guy who understood God and acted out of his relationship with him, led by the Holy Spirit. That's who's writing this book. Something real quick I'll, I'll, I'll throw out. Um, we'll come to it at some point, but let me see if I can find it real quick. Now, let me just, just tell you, and we'll get to it as we go through the Scripture. At some point he says, guys, I'm going to die soon, and so I'm just going to keep telling you this. What I'm telling you is really important. Christ has revealed to me that I'm not long for this world. He was in Rome, and he would uh, be martyred in Rome very shortly. He had written one letter. He says, this is the second letter I'm writing you, but it doesn't bother me. I'm going to keep telling you this so that after I'm gone, it will strengthen you. And so there's some, some urgency in the letter, not the old urgency that's like, oh, you know, the sky is falling. But it's the, the new urgency of Peter. The kingdom is coming, and I want you to grow in it. So that's who's writing it. And he calls himself the servant, an apostle, the servant of Christ. In the Old Testament, there's a portion of Scripture where <clears throat> if a person was sold into slavery uh, for being in debt, and that would happen, I guess, quite often because they had laws. And so if you got in debt too far you would be sold into debt and you would become the servant uh, of the debtor, uh, of, of the one into whom you were debt. And at the end of seven years or a specific period of time, you would be released. But there was an opportunity at the end of that release. And I've written it out here, Exodus 21.5. Um, just mark that down and go back to it. It says, and if the servant shall plainly say, I love my master, my wife, and my children. I will not go out free. Then he becomes the doulos, the servant of the guy that he had served those years. Wow, how awesome is that? The guy tries his best to live his life, but he keeps getting in debt. Nothing works out, and he finds himself sold or bought by a guy who becomes his master. And he lives there for years, he comes to the end, and we as Americans, we go, oh, man, it's almost over. I'm going to get to go free. But the wise servant at that point says, whoa, 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 wait a minute. I was always scraping for food. Uh, you know, I, 
I could just barely get by. And I always got in these deals that, but my master is so wise. And, well, the place I live is 10 times better than when I Why? Why would I not stay here with my master? And so we, coming into the kingdom of God, we look at our life apart from the master and uh, we say, well, that was crazy. But, oh, if I just live in the house of my master, everything's going to be okay. And so that's the kind of doulos, that's the kind of servant that Peter was. That's the kind of servant we should all be. But he also knew that he had a job to do. He was sent. He was an apostle. He was a sent one. And so he was basically saying, guys, I am in absolute submission to, to Jesus, the one with whom I walked. And he has sent me to tell you this stuff. And then he says, to them who have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. So I'm writing to those who are of the same faith. So the word faith, it's not just a verb to have faith or to believe. But oftentimes in the Bible when it's talking about a people of faith, or your faith. It's like Islam is a faith. Buddhism is a faith. There's all kinds of faiths. Our faith is called Christianity, right? So our faith, our religion, the thing that structures our life. Peter said, the thing that has become my way of life is also your way of life. Our faith is the same. Precious. Our like precious faith. And our faith is based on something. And what is our faith based on? Our faith is based on faith. We have this way of living life that's based in believing in something. And then it affects the way we live. You all have the same faith that I have. And it's based in Christ. And remember, remember, when we talk about faith, uh, I think I want us to always go back to Romans chapter 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believeth. And then it goes on and says, For therein is the righteousness of God revealed, as it is written, The just shall live by faith. Remember when we went through that portion of Scripture? I would encourage you to go back to your notes because we have to live there. Our salvation, our relationship to God is based in this. We trust Him and what He did in Jesus. Life has a lot of questions and how do you make it all right? You go to the doorpost and you let God pierce your ear with an all, because that was what happened to that duelos. When he decided, I love my master, they would take him outside and they would pierce his ear. And that would signify that he was bound forever. How do you live life? How, you know, what kind of house do you buy? How wealthy should you want to get? What should your vocation be? 
Our life is organized by one thing. We have a master. His name is Jesus. And we seek to follow him. And that organizes our life. So I, Peter, who have believed in God's restoration of me to life as it's supposed to be, I'm also writing to you because you believe the same thing. That there is a God and he has revealed himself through his son Jesus Christ and he is our Lord and Master and we can live in relationship with him and he will show us how to live our life. Now guys, I'm going to die soon. I ain't got much, much longer and I want to keep putting you in mind of this thing that God will show us how to live. That there is a way of life connected to him in faith that is just the answer to all of our questions. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Again, I want to draw you back to the many times we've talked about these introductions to the letters grace and peace. That is the whole thing in a microcosm. In two words, it's all there, grace. What is grace? It is, first of all, God's intention toward us, unmerited, that he does on our behalf. By grace, we are saved. But there's an active grace, too. It's not just the attitude of God and the work that he did, which is grace in Jesus Christ. But it is powerful. It, 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 it is a power that works in you. It perfects you beyond your ability, not because you deserve it, but because God is your Father and He wants to pour Himself into you. Grace to you and peace. I hope you have, by now, as many times as you've heard it, you have the right definition of peace. It's not kumbaya shangri-la, it is, I am in relationship with God, and I'm growing in relationship with you. As grace comes, as we're restored to him, and he begins to work his life into us, we become more and more one with him, and more and more one with the other. A more technical definition is um, uh, the restoration of a relationship that has been at war. The restoration of a relationship that has been at war. Listen, you were at war with God and you were at war with everybody around you. But by the grace of God, you've been restored to life and God, who's the author of peace. Peace between you and Him. And if you will do what this scripture tells you to do, you will grow in peace with those around you. These are all introduction. Grace and peace through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Again, I want to draw you back to some past teachings. The warp and woof of who we are comes from Romans, or John chapter 17, verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Life. Grace and peace, life, this flow of life comes through what? 
knowing the Father and the Son. This is life that you might know the Father and the Son. And so it's in relationship with Him that we experience day by day, moment by moment, and other people experience through us day by day, moment by moment, through our knowledge of God. In Ephesians chapter 1, and again, I'm just pulling this back to, to, to things that, that should burst in your mind. When you read these first verses, these things should be bursting in your mind. Ephesians 1, 17 and 18. Remember, in the beginning of Ephesians, we memorized it. It goes over and over. Listen, can you understand what God's done in your life? You are the, you are the chosen of God. And his purpose is to reveal himself in the earth. And you have great inheritance. And it's going to grow into the culmination of all things together, together in one, in Christ. Hallelujah. And after that, just powerful scripture, he says, now let me pray for you. And this is a prayer. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of what? Glory. God is the Father of glory. He's a glorious Father, but... What comes out of his fatherhood is glory, and God intends for your life to be fathered into glory. May give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Listen, it's a big thing that I just told you, Paul said in Ephesians. And now I'm praying that you'll begin to understand what that means in your life. That God will open up your eyes and you will see the possibilities. The eyes of your understanding be enlightened that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what is the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. God has a glorious inheritance as a father. It's in you. God's inheritance is in you because he chose you. Because you are married to his son. All right, let's keep going. I mentioned this last night. Uh, now, let's keep going. If I get off, this is such a great book, and I want to get as much as we can. Verse 3, according as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. So, his divine power, all that God has for you, that has to do with life, comes as we grow in knowledge, through the knowledge of Him. And it circles back around. All this glory and divine power, life and godliness, it comes as He works in you, but then He comes back around and He says, He doesn't say life and godliness, but He says glory and virtue. There is something working in you that if you can get in touch with it, that if you'll study the word and you'll let it open your eyes, you will begin to live to a glorious life, a more glorious life. And let me just stop. I, 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 you know, I get emphatic sometimes and, and it comes across wrong. I, I think you all are pretty glorious. I, I didn't know how glorious our church was until I started spending long periods of time again in the world. Not acting like the world, you know what I mean. And, and, and 
and the stark difference of the way your lives are playing out and the way the world is playing. It is glorious. You know, sometimes, sometimes we take for granted how amazing our lives are. But God says that we're growing from glory to glory. We used to sing a song when, when I was younger. Uh, let's see. I just remember one line. His likeness and image to perfect in me the love of God shown to the world. Oh, from glory to glory, he's changing me, changing me, changing me. His likeness and image to perfect in me the love of God shown to the world. That's what's going on. You guys are glorious. Hallelujah. But you're going to get more glorious. What God has done is let's not take that for granted. But less forgetting those things behind, press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling, which is absolute, absolute conformity to the image of Christ. Glory and virtue. We are called to glory. It is a word that means something that secures praise or renown. You know, there's nothing wrong with wanting people to praise you. As long as you remember they're praising you simply because of the work that God's done in you, that's the way God gets honor. Do you think I get jealous when somebody tells me how handsome one of my sons are? or what great singers my daughters are. I guess you all don't know my family. My my girls can't sing and my sons aren't handsome. But anyway, uh, I don't, I'm like, I'm not like, oh, I I, I can't believe they're, they're seeing it in my son, but they don't see how great I am. It is an honor to God when his children are exalted in the earth. You are being brought to the place that people are going to look at your life and they're going to say, wow, what an amazing life. That is so awesome. Men, it says, will praise God because of your life. Because your life is glorious. How amazing is that life? Here's something else. Great beauty and splendor, magnificence. You are called to beauty, to magnificence. That's what lives inside of you. So through the knowledge of God, by the grace of God, we're becoming beautiful and praiseworthy. And again, I know some some of you may have your theological uh, wheels turning, and, and, and I'll stop and I'll go through the Bible with you and show you why it's not wrong that people will admire you, praise you to the glory of God. Okay? Don't, don't, don't get off on that little point. Beautiful, magnificent, praiseworthy. That's your life in a nutshell. And some of us are more nuts than others. All right, let's keep going. And virtue, glory and virtue. Virtue is conforming to a standard of right, morality, moral excellence. And all of these things are beneficial qualities. Manly strength or woman, womanly chastity, 
commendable trait, a capacity to act. You're called to glory and virtue. That is, living a life that is lived perfectly excellent, the way life is supposed to be. God knows that, and if we live it, people will see it. They're like, oh, that's what you should do when people cut you off in traffic. Oh, that's what you should do when you get a gift. Oh, that's the way you should respond when taxes come due. Oh, that's the way you should respond when you get a refund. The guy, every choice he makes, it just, it just feels so right in the way life is supposed to be. Virtuous. Virtuous. The, the classical uh, definition is the means between two extremes. Courage is not being a coward but not being rash. Courage is knowing how to act in the face of danger. You just don't blindly throw yourself into a battle that you can't win, and then you're not around to protect your family. But at the same time, even if there's some risk to your life, if you have to do this to protect your family, you choose to do it. That's courage. Courage is not getting killed being stupid. You know, the, the famous last words of the redneck, hold my beer and watch this. <laughs> it, it's not, that's not courage, that's stupidity. And so we're supposed to live virtuous lives, always doing the right thing. And we're going to look at some virtues here re- re- really shortly. All right. All right, all of this is true, Okay. But where is it based? Where is it founded? Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Having escaped the corruption in the world through lust. All right. This is Peter, and he's saying, guys, guys, All this is true. I'm telling you that you can become glorious, that you can become virtuous, that you can live the kind of life that's amazing and everybody else sees it, but it's not as much about everybody else seeing it as you get to live this life because God has promised it. God has promised. He has given us precious promises. Hang on to the promises of God. Standing on the promises of Christ, our King. (laughs) Throughout all eternity, let His praises ring. Hallelujah. You've been given promises and this is true. I'm going to die soon, so I'm going to be emphatic. I'm going to keep reminding you. Isaiah 55, 11. So shall my word be, and I'm sure this was in his mind, when he said, "We we have exceeding precious promises I'm sure Isaiah 55, 11 was in his head. So shall my word be that goes forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereunto I send it. God says you are going to be filled with glory, and God gets what he wants. God gets what he wants. And when he sends out a word, it may tarry. 
but wait for it. It will come to pass. I'm confident of this very thing, that he which began a good work in you will complete it until the day that Jesus comes back. And we'll get to Jesus coming back here pretty soon. Somebody say hallelujah. Hallelujah. Do you remember last week when we talked about um, uh, just uh, believing in the fact that we have an inheritance and God has made a promise? Remember what I said about Nehemiah? Well, remember what I brought your attention to about Nehemiah? He prayed, and here's what he says in his prayer. You are the Lord God who did choose Abraham and brought him forth out of Ur of the Chaldees and gave him the name Abraham. God, I want to remind you something. You chose Abraham, and I'm the son of Abraham. God, you made a promise. You made a covenant. God loves for us to come in faith, believing that he will keep his covenant, that he will keep his promise. God spent 40 years teaching people something. He took them through the wilderness. He drug them around. Sometimes they were hungry. He knew they were going to get hungry. He drug them around, and sometimes they would get thirsty. You know what he was teaching them? You better know. I've told you a hundred times. I'm going to feel bad if you don't know. What, what, What was he teaching him? I suffered you to hunger and fed you that you might learn what, Thomas? Yes. I drug you around and made you dependent on me all the time so that you might learn man does not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. God wants us to know that we live by his word that we grow in knowledge of him through his word, and as we grow in his word and knowledge of him, we become who we were created to be. Amazing stuff. And I'll point this out. At the end it says, it's by becoming who we're supposed to be that we escape corruption that is in the world through lust. I like Peter because he makes things simple. What's wrong? People follow their lust. I mean, you can come up with all kinds of intricate theological doctrines, but you know the problem. It just boils down to this. Lust. Lust. Allowing your desire to attach it to things that are not healthy. Or things that are healthy but too attached. You know how it all got started? It was lust. She saw that apple. And she lusted after it. It was something she wasn't supposed to have. And she, she saw that it was food for the, uh, the pleasant to the eyes, food for the belly, and food to make one wise. And she took it. Lust. First John makes it very clear that that's what it's all about. He says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes... And the boastful pride of life is not of God, but it's of the world. And this world and the lust thereof does what? It passes away. And so what's the problem? 
The problem is we see things that we think are good and we set our desire on it and we pursue those things instead of setting our desire on God and pursuing his word and allowing that to shape us. It's not that we go out drinking. It's not that we go out carousing. It's that we set our desire on something other than what God has called us to set our desire on. Hallelujah. Well, or I mean, oh me. So boil it down. We've got exceeding great. God has promised us a bunch of things. And it's by those promises that, that, that we come to know him. We learn his promise and we learn what he wants. And by that we, we escape this, this, whatever it was that made, made that slave get into debt. Whatever stupidity it was, the knowledge of God heals that as we walk in it. The corruption through lust. All right. Um, And then, it, and then it moves on to verse 5. And beside this, giving all diligence, <coughs> excuse me, and beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. So now, how do we live? Well, he's going to give seven different virtues, maybe six, maybe seven, however you want to look at it. And he starts with faith. Now, is he saying... Now, here's what you want to add to your religion. Or is he saying, in addition to having really strong belief, you need to add this. You can start wherever you want. But the next thing that comes along is you add to your faith virtue. We've already talked about virtue, right? You know what virtue is. And then add to that knowledge. We've already talked about knowledge. You know what knowledge is. And to knowledge, temperance. Temperance is one of the four cardinal virtues uh, out of, out of uh, Greek philosophy. But temperance is self-control. And to help you understand what self-control is, Hattie, I'm going to wait until you get back, because I, I was really thinking of you when it was self-control. And no, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, self-control. The first place it's used in the Bible, I think, will help you understand what it is. Um, it was in Genesis 43, 31, and it was used to describe Joseph's control of his affectionate impulses toward his brother. Now that is self-control. Thank you. <laughs> and being led of the Spirit. And a glorious thing to do. Oh, Hallelujah. Thank you very much. Um, you're a good doulos of Christ. Um, so this, here's the situation, and, and you're going to love this. I, I think we'll open up in you opportunity to grow knowledge of God. Grow in temperance. Grow in temperance. Temperance is, has to do with desires. In the classical sense, temperance is one of the, 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 the virtues and it has to do with how you interact with your desires. It is having your desires, but, but, but choosing to act properly in the midst of your desires. But here's what happens. 
Joseph has become king, second to the king, second to Pharaoh, down in Egypt. His brothers have now come, and he is just overcome with this, oh, my brothers, oh, just this, this great affection comes up. But he cannot express it. There's something else he has to do first. He has to hold them at arm's length so the process can get finished. So they cannot know that he is the long-lost brother. Because he needs to do some things to help them become who they need to be. Wow. You know when somebody's been gone for a long time and they get home and it's like, oh, it is so good to see you. Airport scenes, you know. <laughs> it's so good to see you. You know. Emma has been in Spain. She's going to come home. And Kent is going to be like, like what? What was the word? Help me. I, I can always use help with words. Uh, Kent? <laughs> yeah, bad example. <laughs> uh, and unfortunately, Melissa went over to visit, so I couldn't use her. That's why I used Kent, but you're right. I should just use her. But you get the idea, right? <laughs> you, it's like out of your gourd excited. What if in that moment you knew that you needed not to act that way and you needed to choose to be stoic and somewhat detached. And if there was a good godly reason, could you even do that? Could you control your emotions? Or someone has deeply offended you. Honestly, an offense. And the anger rises up. And you know what you would like to do? Can you choose to not act on your feelings? Can you be temperate? Can you have self-control? Can you do that? Yes, you can. There's a promise of God that you can become the kind of person that without reference to your emotions, you can choose to be who you need to be for God to be glorified in that moment. I especially like that the first mention is a time of withholding affection, expression of affection. We always think of it, well, don't get angry. There are times when overexpression of affection is harmful to other people, and it keeps them from achieving God's best. Well, think on these things. Patience or steadfastness, the add to uh, virtue, knowledge, to knowledge, temperance, to temperance, patience, the capacity to hold out or bear up in the face of difficulty, patience, endurance, fortitude, steadfast, perseverance. Let's say God has called you to plant a church. And it didn't boom like you thought it should. Maybe God called you to Get married. And it boomed like you didn't think it should. 
What if marriage didn't happen like you thought it should? Can you remain there in patience and perseverance and pushing through? Or do you go off the deep end and do something stupid? Patience. Endurance in the difficult times. Endurance in the difficult times. Godliness. Um, the pious follow sacrificial custom and take care of temples. Awesome respect accorded to God. Devotedness, piety, godliness. It's really connected to the, the Greek word pietos, which is living your life for your ancestry. Living your life in a way that honors your parents, that honors your God. Tradition, not deviating from the way it's been handed down to you. Godliness. To godliness add brotherly kindness and then charity. I'm not going to spend any more time. Um, in your home groups, you can talk about these this week. Um, but I like the fact that it lists Philadelphia and, uh, and uh, Charis, uh, or charity. Two different kinds of love. Brotherly love and the love that lays its life down. So go ahead and look at those. And this is what Peter boils it down to. He doesn't boil it down to really arguing about the finer points of soteriology or pneumatology or theology proper. He boils it down to this. Look, you've believed in Jesus as the Son of God. That's what it's all about. Now, press into him. Come to know him and learn how to live peacefully. Learn how to live lovingly. Learn, keep adding to your life like you're really hearing God. Don't get wrapped up in all these fights, but, but hear God. Hear God's desire that we would love each other, be patient and kind, walk in brotherly love and charity and, 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 and self-control in the way we treat each other. That's it, folks. I'm going to die and I'm going to keep telling you this over and over until I'm out of here because people are going to come and they're going to mix you up. And they're going to appeal to something in you uh, uh, that's a desire. And in your desire, they're going to be able to come up with these intricate theological discussions. But behind it all is going to boil down to they just are full of themselves. And they're trying to touch something in you that's a desire. So they can milk you for money. And at the same time, allow you to live your life like you want to, rather than to grow in the temperance and the love. That's what he's saying. That's it. That's it. We could go home. That's exactly what he said. All right. So let's keep going. Um, verse 12 and 15 here is where he says, I'm going to die soon. And then he goes on and says, so, so let me just convince you. Let me tell you, your faith is not like world religions. Your faith is not a fable. It's not a myth. It's not Greek mythology. It's, it's not Egyptian theology or Semitic theology or philo, uh, mythology. It's real. And, and, and let, let, let's just read this part. Your faith is not some fable, uh, 16 through 21. Let, let, me, let me get my phone here and read it. 
And I, I think this is powerful. I, I think he's going back to probably the most powerful time in his life, maybe even more powerful than the day of Pentecost, or, as far as a memory. All right, verse 14, I'm going to put off my tabernacle soon. Christ has showed me this, and I'm going to endeavor that you may be able to, after I'm gone, have these things always in remembrance. Because we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Guys, I didn't, you know, make up some story or some system. I was an eyewitness of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard and we were with him in the holy mountain. So we have a more sure word of prophecy. What's he referring back to? He's referring back to that day when Peter, James, and John went up into a mountain to pray with Jesus and they fell asleep. And then as they were waking up, it says that they saw Jesus and his clothing shone and it shined brighter than any fuller soap could make clothes. And they saw Elijah and Elisha on the left and on the right, guys, this is not some fable. I was there the day Jesus all of a sudden began to shine. And we heard a voice out of the excellent, the superior glory, which is God. A voice came down and a voice said, this is my beloved son. Hear him. Hear him. Listen to my son. And he stood there. He stood there between the prophets and the law. And they conversed with one another. And later Jesus would walk with his disciples and he would explain how every prophecy spoke of him and all the law pointed to him. And God himself confirmed, I heard the audible voice of God say that Jesus was his son. Later on, Jesus is in a room with his disciples, and he looks around, and he says, who do people say that I am? And uh, they say, some, some say you're Elijah the prophet. Some say you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead. And Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And it was Peter. This is what he said. Thou art the Christ. Jesus, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. This lived big inside of Peter. And before he died, he wanted to say, hey, guys, listen. Jesus is the son of God. It's not some myth. It's not some Herculean myth. It's not some uh, uh, you know, Iliad or Odyssey. It's not Odysseus. It is, he was the son of God because God himself spoke out of heaven and I heard it and I saw him shine, baby shine. 
I was there. In the day that I declared out loud that he was the Christ, the son of the living God, he told me that revelation is what he's going to build his church on. That's the day he changed my name and said I was a rock. And he said he was going to build his kingdom on himself as a rock. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Listen, folks, Jesus is the Son of God. And he has come into the earth and he has made it possible for us to become sons and daughters of God and to live glorious lives. And the gates of hell cannot prevail against us. It's interesting. He doesn't say that Satan can't get you. He says Satan's kingdom cannot stand against you. Now you go and you tear down his walls. So the faith that I'm sharing with you, your common faith, I want you to know it's real. Powerful. Chapter 2, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. Guys, people are going to want Now, what have I just told you? I've told you you've got to love each other. You've you, you got to control yourself. You've got to walk in the excellence of God. Now, people are going to come around, and they're going to have new religions. And, and I, I want to be very clear. This whole chapter talks about heresies arising. And when we think about heresies, we think about Gnosticism or Montanism or, or, or the early official heresies that, that they tried to deal with. But a heresy is just simply any teaching that can appeal to your fallen nature and cause you to think wrong about the way of life. That's all a heresy is. And a heresy gets going. And, and now... You know, with all due respect to social sciences, the greatest heresies of our age have to do with the social sciences. It is a way of life based in a, a, a psychological view of mankind. Before the psychological view, it was a materialistic view, a a. a it, it was materialistically evolutionary. And so our problems were physiological problems. Now, am I saying Thomas is a bad guy because he's a doctor and he deals with our physiology? Not at all. There is truth in the physical realm. And, you know, I have friends who are psychologists. I'm not saying they're bad. But what's bad is when you begin to interpret your life centrally out of therapy and psychology, you see. When that becomes your organizing principle, that's where heresies come from. So some of the heresies that will come out of this psychological therapeutic approach will be this. Your happiness is the most important thing in life. You're not happy, and so we need to deal with that so you can be happy. Or you're depressed, and we don't want you to be depressed. So that's, that's the deal. What mechanism can we use to get you undepressed or to make you happy? Now, does God want you to be depressed? No. Does God want you to be happy? Yes. Is it wrong to love somebody and want them to not be depressed? Is it wrong to love somebody 
and, and, and want them to be happy? No, that's not what I'm saying. But when we decide that there's a scientific way to move you from, from depression to uh, non-depression, and that's all there is, and that's what life is about, and our goal is happiness and lack of depression, that becomes a heresy. It's not about that. It's about glorifying God. And so Christian medicine, Christian psychology, it always has to keep the center as the center. It is so easy. It is so easy for somebody to want to be popular, for somebody to want to to be wealthy, and to capitalize on these very real absolute truths that we have out of science and social or social services, uh, social sciences, and make that the issue. And then all of a sudden, have you ever met these people? They've gone to, to some counselor and uh, he's worked some kind of manipulative magic and now they're happy. And all they can talk about is their counselor and happiness. And then they want to get trained to make people happy. And then they're going around making people happy. And then they go online and look how many ministers go from being ministers to being the head of an organization. The center of it is not God's glory. The center of it is the fact that they have found the method that works. And you'll hear their method over and over and over. And Jesus goes further and further into the background. Now, have I said psychology is bad? Have I said medical science is bad? But that's where you'll see a lot of heresies come from. It gets twisted. And people's desires are met in a way that does not bring them closer to God, but helps them fulfill themselves in themselves. And so false prophets are going to come. All right? And so he goes through and he gives, um, he gives an example. The example that he gives of false, a false prophet is Balaam. So everybody remember the story of Balaam again. Peter really exercises us in knowing the Bible. He uses a shorthand. He says something, you're supposed to know it. What do we know about Balaam? Well, Balaam was a prophet that had been hired by Moab to prophesy against Israel. He had a donkey that wouldn't let him do it, is what it boils down to. But in the end, he decides not to. But because he is desirous... Look at the end of the chapter... um, Verse 15, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. These people have gone astray, and instead of staying clarified on bringing people to Jesus and using whatever science they have in a way that really delivers people from themselves and gives them over to God, It wraps them into their life, their ministry, and their own happiness. Why? Because they're selfish 
and they want gain. And so the root of heresy is the fact that there is desire in people. And you can tap into that desire and pull them away from God to fulfill your own lusts. All right, let me read a few things out of here. Many will follow their sensuality, verse 2. Verse 9, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. They revel in their passions. Verse 12, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, they will also be destroyed. They have hearts trained in greed, eyes full of adultery and satchable for sin. So our faith, our way of life can get sidetracked because there is a whole network of people out there who are sidetracked and they can package it in such a way and put it in a TED talk and it's like, yeah, there's something about that that grabs me. And before you know it, you're a salesman rather than a servant. Does that make sense? These, these, these uh, uh, I, I wish I could think of the one lady's name. And, and it goes on long enough and it becomes bonafidely, everybody knows that it's a heresy. But it gets off, it gets off in the beginning because of these things. Lust exists, and people know how to tap into it. And sometimes they don't even know they're doing it. It's like Balaam. He wasn't going to prophesy against Israel, but he showed the king a way to bring Israel into bondage. Isn't that something? He didn't want to speak out right against God, but he really wanted that satisfaction of his own desires. And so he chose to act in a way that created a heresy. So, heretics are going to come. Be careful. Don't jump on every heresy that comes along. All right. But also in this chapter, he does another thing. Not only are heretics going to come, and you've got to watch out for it, but God's going to separate. In the end, God is going to separate. And what he does in order to help us understand that, he goes through three different stories. If you read it, you know, does anybody know, can anybody name the three stories that he goes through? Talking about how he's going to separate. He talks about the angels that fell. He talks about Sodom and Gomorrah. And he talks about uh, Noah and the flood. Guys, just love each other. Just be temperate. Just, just, be, just do the right thing. Because let me tell you something. God knows how to separate, and in the end, he's going to separate. Don't get caught up with people that are going to lead you off, because God knows how to... Well, look. These angels that followed the lie, well, we know where they are. They're in chains. They're being held in place until God comes and judges all of the false prophets. He's going to judge the angels, too. Well, look what happened with Lot. God knew how to divide that. He called Lot out of the city, and he sent fire down on the city. It's not confusing. 
Here, let me make it clear. Look at the story of, of Noah and the flood. He took care of that. He floated eight people above it all, washed it all away. He's coming and he's going to divide it all for you. And those people who have walked in faith, trusting God, Jesus as their master, following him, allowing him to teach them how to live life instead of finding somebody who will let them out of the pressures of life, but someone who will take them through and shape them into his image, in the end, it's all going to be revealed. All right, let's keep going. Chapter 3. Now, this is the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. I'm not telling you anything new. I'm just reminding you. I saw Jesus (laughs) glorified. And I declared he is the Christ, the son of the living God. You should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing and following their own sinful desires. This is what happens. People begin to follow their own desires, and they begin to say, they forget. And it's not like they say, oh, Jesus isn't coming back. They just quit living as though Jesus is coming back. And I think maybe if, if there's any place that I've fallen short, it's, It's living like Jesus is coming back. There's something about that anticipation. It's easy to lose it. It's easy to get caught up with this world and not really live as though Jesus is coming back. So scoffers will come and they'll say, well, you know, they've been saying that since Noah. And then Peter goes on and gives them this. If I will just remember this. With the Lord, one day is a thousand years, but also a thousand years is just like a day. So it's only been about four days since Jesus said he's coming back. In God's mind, there is no time. There is no impatience. There's only temperance. And I like it. It says he's long-suffering. See, here's where you get to know God. If you don't know God, you're like, oh, he said this for hundreds of years. Well, here's something we learn about God. It hadn't been hundreds of years. It's just been a day. From God's side, it's just a day. And he's not unattentive to his word. Something more important than this anxious, oh, I want to get it over with so I can have the bride of Christ up here. That's going to be so glorious. Let's do it now. Well, no. It says he's long-suffering. Long-suffering, it's a virtue. Willing that none should perish. He acts in accordance with his nature to fulfill the bride of Christ, not wanting any person to perish. And you see, you think, well, now, why not just cut it off now? There's some people that haven't been born that have a place in heaven. And God's patient, not willing that they would perish, that they would never be born. Oh, oh, the greatness of God to be able to interact. 
you, you think your life is complicated? How shall I live? Bills are due. Bosses, you know, ragging on me. Car broke down. They keep changing insurance. How in the world can I, what do I do? Just think about God. He's got that eight billion times over. Plus he's in control of the weather. How does God do that? He causes it to rain on the just and the unjust. And everybody's down here, Lord, just don't let it rain tomorrow. I'm supposed to go on a picnic with my family. Oh, God, our crops need rain. Please send rain tomorrow. God can do it. In every situation, he works everything together for good. He's just waiting. But he's coming back. And don't lose that anticipation. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the very beginning. They overlooked the fact that one day is as a thousand years. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So don't, don't, don't get weary. Don't forget Jesus is coming back. When Jesus ascended, they were all sitting there, mouth open, looking up. And uh, Jesus said, well, why do you stand here gazing? Or an angel said that. He's going to come back. He's going to come back just like he went up. And all throughout the, the, the epistles, 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 to 18, For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them, in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort ye one another with these words. Verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. He explains, God is able to separate it out, and Jesus is coming back. I saw, I saw a bumper stick one time that says, Jesus is coming back. And boy, is he mad. <laughs> Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? So here's the deal. Just love each other. Just walk in patience. Walk in wisdom. Walk in faith and trust. Because God's going to divide it all out. And the world is going to dissolve and be reformed. It's all going to pass away. So how should you live? You should live full of godliness, pressing into Him, and virtue. I'll just finish reading and, and we'll be done. 
Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. Verse 17, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away, this is verse 17, with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. But grow in the grace. We're coming right back full circle. Don't get caught up in that lawlessness and impatience. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Hallelujah. I saw Him glorified. I saw him in that majestic mountain. And he wants to work that glory in us and for us to live in such a way that he's magnified. And in the end, he will come back. And everything that's corruption and works against his glory will be gone. And then everything will ultimately be to his glory, both now but forever. It's all about God being glorified in the end. So Peter... Christ had told him he was going to die. And these are his thoughts that he wanted to leave with us. I think they're great thoughts uh, for us to live by. This is just a reminder. Remember, Peter said, I'm just reminding you of what you already know. And I think he believed what they were walking in. He never once rebukes them and says, you guys are messing up. He says, you guys are walking in it. We're of the like precious faith. But let's stand against those things that would come in and distract us and cause us to live in ways. Uh, that don't honor God. Amen? All right, that's it. That's the teaching. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about it in home group this week. Um, I love it. I, I love this book. It's, it's very different from Paul. It's just very simple and, 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 and sort of purging and cleansing. And yeah, okay. I think I'm going to be happy and not depressed anymore. You know, it's funny, as, as, I, was, as I was teaching through, um, I, 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 every, it, it was hard to say some things because it was like, you know, if you have conversations during the week and you come and you're exegeting scripture and it kind of touches on those things, you're like, oh, people are going to think I'm talking about that. I'm, I haven't talked about anything current. This is just a teaching um, and one thing that I thought was kind of funny is, is I talked about perseverance and when things get hard. And uh, so you all know that, um, that we're going to, as a, as a context, we're going to change a little bit the way we do the service and, and who all is going to be here. Uh, I, I certainly, there's nothing in this sermon that was directed at that, okay? Um, but, but I do want to talk about that, um, so this is going to be our last time in this context. We're going, to, we're going to reframe, and we're going to continue a little bit differently. And while we're doing this, let, let me tell you some things we've done in the past. Uh, there was one time when we canceled church in Lexington. Everything was going great. But we canceled church, 
in the building. All right? Because if coming to church on Sunday morning is your religion, you don't understand what was going on in the New Testament. It was in their houses all the time in the Bible. And when it gets boiled down to just a Sunday morning meeting, that's part of the heresy uh, that captures the church. A lot of traditions in the church are really heresies, things that the early church did. Uh, Now, meeting on Sunday morning is not a heresy. And we will continue to do that. And as long as we're a church, we're going to meet on Sunday morning. But what happened in the Lexington church is... A lot of people, they didn't have life with one another. So we thought, what better way to deal with that than to not have the Sunday morning for a little while? So that if you want to have church, you're going to do it at somebody's house, you know? Um, church was never meant to be dependent on a pastor, ever, never. The word pastor, you know how many times you find that in the New Testament? One time. One time. There may be another time it quotes, uh, uh, I think it was in Jeremiah, it talks about shepherds and pastors. But in the New Testament, the word pastor appears one time. Why, why, why are pastors so important? Thank you. <laughs> pastors, pastors is mentioned one time and y'all have two. <laughs> They have, a, they have a place, but they shouldn't have priority. It's our activity and our life and our love together. Anyway, so we canceled it, and uh, everybody really fell in love with each other a lot more. <laughs> it wasn't just coming talking to a, to a, a talk, listening to a talking head, but it was, wait, if we want to live and grow and be together, then we've got to live and grow and be together. <laughs> and so it was great. Another time, we shut down all the home groups and said, we're not going to have home groups anymore because people were talking like, oh, we're so righteous and we, you know, we're a home group church and that's what makes us. No, that was, that, you know, they didn't have home groups in the Bible. They met from house to house, but that doesn't mean that they sat down, sang a song. You know, they mostly, I think they went and they ate with each other a lot. And so as we've tried to develop as a church, what we've tried to do is, 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 is keep the spirit of what goes on in the New Testament. And so moving ahead, uh, there's, there's a couple of things that are going to happen. One, there are a lot of people who feel like this is their church. This is, this is where God has placed us. And so we're going to continue to meet. Um, but there's some other people who uh, feel like this is their church, uh, but they want to go and, and spend some time with some people. Uh, and rest and, and, and renew relationship with people that, uh, that planted this church. And so they're going to take some time and they're going to they're be over in those churches. And there may be a person or two who feels like, you know, I came, I helped plant the church. You all don't know this, but when we first came out here, we asked several people to come and they came and they stayed for a year to kind of help bear the load and get things started. There may be a person or two who feels like, you know, they've come down here, they've helped, and their time's done, and it's time for them to go back to one of the other churches. So all those things will be going on, and uh, those people who are going to, to do those other things, they know who they are. Uh, but we are going to be the remnant 
left in the destroyed tabernacle. <laughs> but they're going into captivity. Uh, <laughs> so I think this is going to be a great thing. I, I think it's something that we've needed to do. And uh, it's been out of many conversations and finding where everybody's heart is. So I'm really excited. And so what's going to happen is next week we're going to come and we're going to ask the folks that have decided to, to be somewhere else to make this the time that begins. So we know when the period of time begins. And then we who remain, shall we caught up in the air? And, no. Um, we who remain, uh, we're going to get together next week and we're going to have breakfast and we're going to have church around the table next week. And at church, we'll go over scripture. Uh, Bill is going to lead worship. Um, and uh, Bonnie is going to cook breakfast. <laughs> Can I get an amen? <laughs> I'll help you, Bonnie. Um, talk about glory. Talking about heaven coming down. Talking about being transformed. If we can get Bonnie to cook breakfast, we'll fill this building. <laughs> we, might, we might change it to Bonnie Christian Fellowship. <laughs> BCF. <laughs> and George can do dishes. <laughs> you can't hear <laughs> And so that's just where we are, and, and I think it's going to be great. It's going to be fun. And those of you who, who, who are going to be here, it'll just be a time of fellowship, and it'll be church, church in a way that's similar to the, they did at Matthew's party uh, when he got saved. So as far as time and place, nothing's going to change, but sort of the structure's going to be a little different, and um, we'll talk about it next week. I think it is going to be so exciting and so fun. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. And I'm really thankful for the opportunity for some people who need to, to, to do some other things, to do those things. We'll hold the fort. We're here. And uh, those of you who, who find yourself somewhere else in the end, uh, that's great. You know, we've always said the best place to be is where God wants you. And uh, we'll be glad you're gone. <laughs> and I really mean that. And people hate when I say that, but a lot of times I like to say things in ways that make people think, would you like people to be where they're supposed to be, or would you like for them to be with you? Like Joseph, he was able to resist his brotherly love to make a better choice for his brothers. And so we should always be happy to make a better choice for our brothers, even though we would personally like them to be here in God and in Christ, we're really happy for them to be where they need to be. So I think we'll learn a lot just kind of working through this uh, about the kingdom and God and knowing him. And so, so I'm really looking forward to these next few weeks. So, Kurt, this is why I waited till the end to do communion. This is the last communion. <laughs> it's kind of like the Passover. It was really the last Passover before Christ died and birthed the whole new thing. So... Uh, we're going to do communion together, and uh, you want to come on up, and uh, you want, to, want us to just do it.
All right. All right. Well, we know what communion is. Communion says grace that brings peace. Grace that brings peace. It's, it's God in us through the broken body and the shed blood uh, that produces the opportunity for us to be one loaf, to be a brotherhood. And so we receive grace today as we come and we take the Lord's Supper. So serve yourself. Uh, hallelujah. Hallelujah.